But today, one traveler, Dustin Evans, is here to tell us about a destination where the locals are so isolated from tourists that when they see you, they're probably going to want to grab a selfie with you because you're one of the few, if not the only foreigner, that has visited their town. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Simon Payton. Bill Bragoo. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Sean Thomas, and this is Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. So I'm, uh, my name's uh, Dustin Evans, and uh, actually from uh, Toronto, Canada, but I've, I grew up in Hong Kong my entire life. Um, and uh, so now I uh, do a combination, actually I have another job, I roast coffee in Hong Kong. And uh, a lot of my trips, I find beans for the guy that does my roasting. So, uh, so I supplement my income with that and Airbnb here in Seattle. Dustin, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It sounds like you got a lot going on there. You're, you're roasting beans. You're being, talk about that, bean roasting. What are you, what are you doing there? Uh, or, or just uh, roasting coffee. Uh, um, I, I don't personally do it myself. I'm doing it a little bit here in Seattle, but uh, um, growing up in Hong Kong, there's this coffee shop I used to frequent. And uh, anybody that's listening to this show, if they ever met, say, an older person that you feel like they've been doing something for so long. It's kind of an art. Mm-hmm. So this is how this old man was in Hong Kong that I met uh, that roast coffee. So, uh, so on my trips, uh, I find beans and send them back to them. And, and in Hong Kong, you don't have the, um, uh, I'd imagine maybe in Canada or U.S. here, sending beans and plants and stuff back into U.S. You need an importer. You can't just do it. Um, in Hong Kong, there's a lot less regulation in that. You can send uh, things that you find back and, and not have to worry about government regulation as much. So you send the beans back to this guy. He roasts the beans and do you get paid for this? Yes. Wow. Or I, I'm part owner of the shop now. For the longest time, he was just roasting in a little warehouse and now he has a shop and or it's actually a, a micro roastery. So the many roasteries in the U.S., you'll see if if the roasters are in the shop, they're maybe like an 8,000 gram roaster, one of the big, huge ones. But he roasts on really small ones so they can really fine tune the roast profiles. And so mm-hmm. it uh, so even people can go into the shop and say they like this bean and he'll roast the coffee while you're having coffee. Wow. So So it's a coffee shop as well. Yes. And you can buy the beans there that are roasted. Yes. Or uh, if you like really fresh coffee, he'll just roast them while you're, while you're there. And, and you just get a, like a, like money transferred to sort of on a monthly or whatever basis, this is your profit sort of thing. Uh, yes. Yes. Something and, like that. And do you supply all the beans? Or like, are you always uh, like, are you sort of forced and, to say, no, I got to get this just, many? Uh, 
Because uh, some of the farmers I met, uh, they're, it's a really small operation. Mm-hmm. Or uh, a lot of them I found is in Sumatra, which is the northern part of Indonesia. So it's just small little family farms. I, I think it's with that kind of approach, it's really hard to scale it. So uh, um, I send what I can to him. And, um, but he gets other beans from big coffee importers in Hong Kong that there's a steady supply of them coming in. So I can supplement it a little bit to uh, have a very uh, unique roast and just unique coffee that you don't get from anywhere else in the world. So you, you've sort of invested in this, in the, I guess the equipment or whatever it was, and away you go. You've got this business running. Now, do you think that's possible? Because it's running through my mind as, you, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking, wow, what a great setup for somebody who likes to travel and find some places where your dollar will go further, or yes. you know, you can you take a smaller amount of money and, and actually get a business going where you couldn't you know, in the Western world with that same money. Would that still work if you didn't grow up there? Like, Would you be able to make those same connections? Uh, Hong Kong's pretty foreigner-friendly. Yeah, it, it's a lot easier to own a business than, say, in mainland China. Um, yeah. but, uh, but it still needs to, they have a weird ownership structure where the local has to own 51% of the business. Yeah. And that so makes you sense. Can never, yeah. You can never truly own it. Yeah. But, but I'm thinking like as an investment thing where you can get some, and I'm not even thinking just Hong Kong. Like, I mean, if you can find any place like this, it could be worthwhile. And I know at one point I remember reading an article about, um, micro investments is what it was. And, and that's what you're doing. I think they were talking about Africa in general, and the countries in Africa, uh, maybe central Africa, people were making these micro investments. Re- really, it was very small money, but it meant a big difference for these small business owners who might be, I don't know, making whatever candles, you know, some sort of mm-hmm. local thing. And they could do so much more because they could buy more supplies, et cetera. And you just sort of be, I think that was more of an investment uh, process where you're getting your money back with a tiny bit of interest. But but I'm thinking that they're the other option. It would be, you know, go right, find somebody that's reliable, who you trust, like you've done and and get a business going. And there's actually another uh, um, drink I found in Northern Sumatra again. It's kind of a kombucha type drink. It it tastes like, but it's made a completely different way. And if you've ever been to places like Colombia, you see them drying the coffee on the road. Mm. And, and, but it, again, it, it, uh, so like when we get a case of that in, it sells in like an hour, oh, really? um, wow. but, but it's hard to scale because it's just one lady making it and her, her daughter went to school in London and she won't, she's really on the business side of it. So she doesn't want to tell me like, Oh, this is how you make it. So, it's, uh, <laughs> so protecting you could ever, <laughs> yes. So yeah. they're very protective on it. And this is just from a little coffee shop I found on the motorcycle, actually, on the most recent trip and just riding in Banda Aceh, the most northern province in Indonesia. Oh, I see. Oh, that's interesting. Hey, you mentioned you you were born in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Yes. You grew up in Hong Kong. How, how did that happen? Uh, my, my parents owned a, a computer chip factory uh, in Shenzhen. Um, the, the province over from uh, Hong Kong... Uh, that's kind of known as the Silicon Valley of Asia. And actually that's where probably the computers we're using right now were all made. Um, so, uh, but it, back at that time, it was uh, kind of the wild west with computers. And um, so, yeah, all the big companies uh, from, you know, the Western world were making all their electronics in that part of China. So they worked in the computer industry and uh, eventually retired. And then I stayed, um, even though after, after high school, I traveled a lot. Uh, so it, uh, 
maybe maybe you could better say uh, after high school, the world was my home instead of Hong Kong. Mm. So you got a taste of it though when you're younger, and I guess that probably removed all the fear for you. The rest was just exploring. Yes, I actually had no idea. I uh, um, when I first bought the bike in South Africa, I never thought about dropping it or falling or crashing. I, I think it was like a, when I got into Europe, I I dropped it in a parking lot, and then that was the first time I had ever dropped the bike. And it's like, oh well, this hurts when you you know when you get your leg pinned under the bike with no gear on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, that's like the comparison of being a child to growing up, isn't it? I mean, as a child, you sort of live in a a blissful world. Like, you know, ignorance is bliss. You don't know. And then when you get older, you get all paranoid because we learn all these things that are supposed to improve our lives. (laughs) I think it makes us a little scared. And I guess uh, in Hong Kong at that time, uh, people still had motorcycles, uh, scooters. So everybody used motorcycles. So it wasn't seen as a thing that was dangerous. But, but here, um, I've noticed that uh, if you just talk to some random person in a coffee shop, many times they'll say like, oh, well, isn't that dangerous? So it, I, I guess mm-hmm. it's just a different perspective on the whole motorcycle thing. Well, it's a fear of what you don't know as an adult, not so much as, as a child, because you just don't think of the consequences. But as an adult, you, you tend to, I, mean, I don't know if it's, we, we get some basic fears built into us and then learn to be afraid of things that we aren't familiar with or that we don't know. And, and of course, when you say you go and ride a motorcycle in another part of the world, someone who doesn't do that or has no inkling about that would think there's so many yes, things yes. wrong with that. A strange place, a motorcycle. I mean, so, hey, you, you mentioned, I want to ask you about this. You, you mentioned that your, your first bike was an Africa Twin. Can you tell yes. that story? Because you were backpacking at the time. Y- yes, yes. I was backpacking at the time. And I, I had met other um, travelers that were going north. Um, I, I don't know how far north in South Africa, but it, uh, they, they'd rent bikes and many of the local rental companies, uh, they would want your passport or your driver's license or a thousand dollars or a thousand euros for a deposit. But I think, uh, um, at least the ones I talked to uh, allowing me to rent a bike, you know, taking it outside the country was out of the question. And, and I feel like a lot of rental bike companies in the world are like that. They, they don't want you taking them out of the country. Sure. Um, so it's, uh, and I'd never really thought much about motorcycling, but it seemed like it would uh, be a lot easier than taking a dirty bus north um, or hitchhiking um, or just flying, you know, from Joburg down to Cape Town. Uh, so I, 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 I saw this old Africa twin and uh, he, uh, the guy owned a bar um, in a part of Johannesburg. And, uh, I, uh, and it was around where I was staying. So I saw him in traffic and... Uh, were you looking for a bike at this point? No, no. Or I was looking a little bit, but the the kind of trip I was wanting to do, riding north, um, you know, the whole length of Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, rental bikes. And, and I, I don't know why uh, that I basically went from looking to rent and then I found out that was impossible. Then I saw this old Africa twin in traffic. And then the next day I saw it parked in front of this bar I went in and talked to the owner. And actually, that's kind of a funny story because I, I guess a German guy a few years before rode it to South Africa and sold it and oh, right. uh, then sold it to a local um, from the UK. And uh, then I bought it from him, rode it back to Germany and actually found the guy an ADV rider <laughs> and was able to get all the original paperwork and like the owner's manual, the other key 
Um, oh, is that right? So, wow. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> you're determined. That, that's very determined yes. <laughs> of you to go find this. But but when you went to buy the bike from the guy that, at the bar, was yes. when you walk in there, what happens? Uh, it, well, he was actually looking to sell it because it was a uh, sold illegally. So it uh, um, so I bought it a bike without paperwork. And maybe it, uh, maybe now you wouldn't be able to do it, but uh, I rode the entire west coast of Africa without the bike in my name, without insurance. Um, so no ownership document showing it was my bike. So, so it, uh, I, I typically am one to, not to pay, um, uh, you know, pay the customs people to look the other way. But, um, in that case I had to, when the bike wasn't, uh, I didn't have any ownership documents of it. Well, and you're supposed to have a carnet too, weren't you? Y- yes, I was. Yeah, that too. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it was uh, Morocco when I finally figured out what a carnet was. <laughs> By the time you were done, Africa, you yes. were, you're about to get on the ferry and leave, and, and that's yes, when you discover yes. it. And then I've since gone back, but I've only uh, rented in Africa since. And uh, I guess you need a carnet everywhere in Africa or most countries. And Egypt is like 800 percent. Yeah, yeah. They, I, I when I got my carnet on my last trip on the new Africa twin, they specifically asked if I was going to Egypt, and I've actually heard uh, another show of yours, and I guess a lot of. Uh, they're very reluctant to have Egypt on there because I guess they turn turn in the carne to try to get the money for it. Yeah, I understand. There's a lot of there's potential fraud there, and, yes, and you can yes. understand why too. The money's yes. big. Oh yes, yes, yeah. So I, I bet still eight hundred percent. It's uh, quite quite a lot. Yeah, and you're gonna pay for that on your carne, of course. I mean, you either oh, put yes, the money yes. up front, or you're gonna have to pay the 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 fee for the for the um, insurance, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So they, the lady told me, uh, if you're going to do Egypt, definitely, uh, get the insurance instead of putting the money up. Mm-hmm. So how, how many times have you ridden around the world by motorcycle? Uh, so, or, or I, I normally say two times, but technically it's only about a time, uh, one and a half times around the world. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. So the, um, the old Africa twin from South Africa, I, I, rode that up, uh, to Germany and then the top of the UK and, uh, down through Indonesia. But, um, when I, I guess Australia, Australia, it's, uh, quite difficult, uh, if the bike's dirty or has a lot of areas where dirt can get into, they stick cameras. And, uh, so I was in Dili and the shipping agent was saying, uh, you know, I would never get clearance to get the bike into Australia. So I ended up riding back through Indonesia North and, uh, eventually took it back to Hong Kong and then flew that bike to U S and uh, I didn't go to Alaska cause it was a winter time. Uh, so, and remind you this is back in 2010 and then I rode to Ushuaia on it and, uh, back up to, uh, Santiago and then flew it back to Hong Kong. And then in, uh, 2018, when the new Africa twin came out with the same color scheme, it's like, Oh, well, I just have to have this bike. And, 650 was the biggest bike I had ever had at the time. And, uh, and the new ones were a thousand and it's like, God, those are really big motorcycles. I had never ridden something so fast or big. And, and then when you combine it into, into a country like Indonesia, it just doesn't work very well on a bike that big. When you bought the Africa twin originally in, in South Africa, did you have your license? Were you already a rider at that point? No, no, I had never, uh, actually didn't even have a driver's license. 
So, okay, so, so when you buy this bike, then what was your plan? Was your plan to become a motorcyclist, to ride around the world on a motorcycle? Or was uh, no, it- I, I, I had just been planning to ride through, through Africa. I, th- I think I, I saw a blog. I, I've never been able to find it again, but some guy from the UK had a blog and he drove a Toyota Corolla down the east coast of Africa and then back up the west. And, and, and then, and then uh, oh, this is the other thing he did. He did this, uh, so he went back to the UK and then he saw all these vehicles with a, so, so say a Mini Cooper with a telephone booth on the top. And there was these vehicles going out to do the, um, the Mongol rally. Oh, yeah. So he got back to London and then uh, saw all these vehicles. I like, well, that's kind of cool. I'll just follow them. And so he uh, did the unrally, in a, or not the unrally, the, the Mongol rally in a Toyota Corolla following all these vehicles. And I guess the point of, the point of it is to, um, uh, to do it in a vehicle that's not suited. So I read that blog back in 2008 and it's like, well, that sounds really fun to go around Africa. And, um, once I got up to Morocco, I was out of money. And, uh, um, so going back South again was out of the question. So, uh, so I guess at that point I maxed out my credit cards to, uh, um, get the bike to Germany for a few months so I could get home and, uh, make some more money so I could continue my trip. So this has become a bit of an addiction for you, the travel thing, draining your pockets, yes. <laughs> sending you home only yeah. when you're, you're destitute. Yes, yes. I, I think I, I listened to Sam Manicom's episode yesterday and I, he, he said he likes to get home with a little buffer. Yeah. I, I was definitely the opposite of that. <laughs> <laughs> so are you getting treatment right now? Are you on some sort of medication for this? Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> no now, now, it, now it's, uh, um, I, I don't do that anymore. Oh, now, now you've got it yeah. down to an art. Well, well you learned, yeah. didn't you? You went through, yeah, yes. and you, you made all the mistakes and now you found ways to actually make it work. Yes. And coming home with like $60,000 of credit card debt. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah uh, I, I, I kind of got good at finding, uh, you know, in uh, Russia at the time, not every gas station accepted credit card, but I like figured out which ones did and use those versus, uh, where you can really maximize your card spending versus using physical, physical cash. Oh, and save your cash for when you need it. Right. Yes. Yeah. So you, you know, uh, eating out one thing you typically use cash, but the two most expensive things are always hotels and, and gas. So, um, so, you know, use, put those on the credit card as much as possible. Right. Right. Which is not good advice. Now I don't do that, but at that time I did. Right. Well, I mean, it worked out really in hindsight. Yes. Actually, before coming to the U.S. Uh, in 2020, I never knew how big the adventure writer community was. I, I kind of hate that term, adventure writer. It, like when I first started writing, you kind of bought a bike that could handle the road. I, I don't know anybody that's ridden West Africa knows the roads aren't uh, like they are here. Mm-hmm. So you kind of buy a bike that's meant for the trip. So the way I looked at it is you're kind of buying a bike that's meant for the trip versus an adventure rider. So it, you, you uh, didn't so, see yourself as an adventure rider. The well, guy I think at that time, at that time, even, uh, or maybe the GS or, or was the adventure rider segment even around in 2010? Uh, yeah, it, it was around. Sure. But um, not yeah. as developed as it is now. Yeah. Yeah. So I've kind of seen it develop over the past 10 years and it, uh, but yeah, at that time you kind of bought something that was comfortable and that could handle the road yeah. coming ahead. And are you still uncomfortable with the adventure rider moniker? Uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of, um, 
yeah, I, I, I kind of uh, look at myself as a traveler versus the biker. It, it, uh, a lot of bikers I've actually met um, since I came to the U.S., people want to ride a thousand kilometers in a day and it, uh, it's, it's just too fast for me. It, uh, my trips have always been very slow and, um, I, I kind of look at it as the hours on the bike. So maybe four or five hours a day, mm-hmm. not, you know, don't, even if you go 20 kilometers, it doesn't in four hours, that's your, you know, that's what you should ride versus riding a thousand in one day. It's just think about how much you're missing. Mm, that makes a lot of sense for everything too, because fatigue comes with hours on the bike and your attention span and all that stuff is affected by the actual time on the bike more yes. than the miles. The miles are, are dictated by speed and mm-hmm. time. And then at that time too, I, um, I was working remotely. So depending on where I was in the world, it might be in the middle of the day or at night when I have to work. So, uh, so I really have to adjust my schedule. And I, and I think, uh, um, even at that time, I like, well, at that time I was actually my condo in Hong Kong. I was renting that. So I, I guess that was kind of a form of another Airbnb that I was doing to supplement income. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, I, I, I figured staying on the road, it was actually just as expensive, just living, staying on the road or being in Hong Kong. So, so, so it cost you, it, what it is, it cost you no extra money to travel. Yes. That's where I finally got into is where it cost me no, nothing extra to travel full time. I see. But then 2020, of course, COVID came along and then you found yourself looking for shelter. How'd yes. you end up in the U.S.? Uh, my, my wife uh, moved to uh, Seattle and, uh, well, she was working for Amazon in uh, China and uh, in Seattle, it's very easy to or I, I guess easier than other companies or to move from country to country. And then Amazon helps you if you're within certain roles. Mm-hmm. So she was able to move here and, uh, it, and it kind of worked out perfectly because I, I never thought I'd live in a Western country, but it, uh, I've always really liked Seattle and the Pacific Northwest. So it was actually a really good uh, opportunity for me to move here and, and uh, do shorter rides, uh, since I've been here, I rode down to Guatemala and, um, and this was during the, the worst of COVID. So I rode to Guatemala and I wasn't able to get back into Mexico. And, um, and then I found out about the BDR routes. So it, it's really great being here to experience all that. What, well, now you've, you've really got me thinking of a couple of things here, but you didn't mention <laughs> wife before. And I, I'm just thinking, how does wife work into your travel? Is she traveling with you? Uh, no, no. So, so this is another reason I, I, I thought about the show is, a, um, so she likes places like Bali or Phuket in Thailand. Mm-hmm. So if I'm not in those places, you can easily just go there and rent a bike. And, and, uh, maybe Phuket's a good example is Phuket has a minimum taxi fares now. So it costs like $50 one way per person to go from the airport down into Petong Beach or, or where you go over to the islands on the ferries. Ooh, 50 U.S. dollars, because yes. this is, this is and, high tourist area. Yes, yes. And, and uh, so you can get a, a motorcycle rental company to just meet you at the airport and you just start your motorcycle trip from the airport and then rent the entire bike for a month for $100. Oh, Wow. Great. So, uh, and great Bali's tip. the same way. Bali's the same way. All, all those tourist places, uh, there's somebody renting that'll let you start at the airport or at your hotel 
where you have very little cost. Uh, but, but yeah, but Phuket comes to mind because the government passed those minimum taxi fares. So um, you can easily be like over $500, the average person for a week, just to go around a few times by taxi. Oh, geez. Now, so, did they introduce that to protect the locals from I, I, I think so. yeah, from foreigners taking yeah. advantage or was it the other way around from them taking advantage of foreigners? Uh, well, because when I first went to Phuket, I remember it being a lot cheaper. And then I talked to a local and I guess they pack or maybe like the taxi mafia. A, a lot of countries that there's a taxi mafia and they influence the government officials. So uh I believe yeah, they call that a lobbying a, group here in, in the yes, Western yes. world. <laughs> <laughs> so, so maybe that's the bad effects of, of uh, groups like that. And, um, and Uber's gone. So now there's just grab taxi. So uh, I, I don't know if they do grab a motorcycle in Phuket, but uh, um, that's another good way to get around the city. So I, I don't know about Phuket, but in Bangkok, you can grab motorcycle kind of like Uber and they just ride you around the city on a motorcycle and mm-hmm. it's, pennies of what it costs in a car. And then also if anybody else have ever been in cities like that, you can't move very fast in a car. So you really have to be on a motorcycle to, to get anywhere in a decent amount of time. You said Uber's gone. They, did they get the boot? Uh, I, uh, another company, I believe from Singapore called Grab, I, I guess bought Uber company there. So now there's just Grab, uh, um, Really, oh, uh, in most of Southeast Asia, there's a few smaller companies, uh, um, like in K in Kuala Lumpur, that uh, you know, kind of like Uber, but just smaller locally, and you can order on the app. Um, and, and I think that was a big thing. Uh, um, or well, going back to South Africa, is uh, um, people get scared of getting in taxis that aren't from uh, apps. Cause you get scammed and they sure. take you somewhere else. And, and even I've had taxis, even with Uber, take you a longer route, you know, to run the bill up. And uh, right. so it's not as bad as it used to be, but, uh, um, but I really think the apps are the way to go if you're going on, uh, with taxis or just rent your own motorcycle and you don't have to worry about anything. It, it uh, um, it, it's kind of funny. Some tourist places you go, uh, like Patong beach or Bali, even, uh, all the, you know, the, the van drivers will come and attack you trying to take you places. But once they figure out you have a motorcycle, they just stop immediately. Cause you're not worth it. They're not worth talking. You're not worth talking to because you have your own transportation. Sure. Well, so, yeah, we're talking about Indonesia here. Now, what's your yes. fascination with Indonesia? Uh, in, in the, I think just back at that, it, it uh, um, how me and my wife were fighting that, uh, Colombia is dangerous. Indonesia is unknown. And, um, so nobody except maybe Kiwis and Australians that Indonesia is kind of their Mexico to the U S. Um, but, uh, Indonesia's, uh, it, it, so maybe what draws me to it is the the cheap cost of travel, um, how nice the people are. And, uh, when you compare it to a place like anywhere in Africa, um, it's just very easy to, uh, you don't have border crossings. You don't have, uh, um, bad police that'll like the police in Indonesia will want you to get off your bike and take pictures with them. And I've had that happen other places in the world, but, but for somebody just starting, uh, on the rental bike, um, trip, 
maybe Indonesia is a good place to start. Mm. And, and then you talk about beautiful landscapes. I guess I haven't even talked about that, but Indonesia is a very volcanic country. So um, Java, the island that's next to Bali, maybe 2,000 kilometers long, there's like 10 volcanoes down the whole island. And, and many of them, I, some of the pictures I sent you, uh, there's two of them. You can actually ride down into the crater on your motorcycle. And there's right. sand dunes in the middle of it and, and these dirt roads that go up the side of it. And um, you could spend a week there just riding around the volcano in this one particular area. And, um, yeah, just great scenery. And then just right down the hill, there's a good-sized city. And say if you don't want to camp, uh, you can stay in a nice hotel or, or a decent hotel. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, definitely not as remote in certain parts of Indonesia as other countries I've ridden. We're going to take a quick break while I tell you about a couple of things. When we come back, we're going to learn more about Indonesia. We're also going to learn about some things that if you do, you're going to be in some serious trouble. Stay with us. If you spent very much time riding, you'd probably run across that stiff wrist feeling. You know, when you're riding a distance, it doesn't even have to be a real long distance, but you got to hold your wrist in exactly the same spot for a long time because it's the throttle, right? Maybe hours, even a quick stop at the side of the road, I find often offers little relief because when you get back on the road, your poor wrist is in that same position again, your hand too. Well, the cure for that is the Atlas throttle lock. This little device will not only relieve that, but it also will change the way you ride. At least it's done it for me. What makes this throttle lock, the Atlas throttle lock, different than anything else you've tried, anything else you've tried, is, well, everything. <laughs> everything about this. First, it's made of metal. It's manufactured with the craftsmanship of a, of a Swiss watch. It's really beautiful. It's simple. There's only two buttons on it. One's for engage, one's for disengage. And they both have a positive feedback to them, so you know exactly what's going on as soon as you press the button. Then it's solid. The whole thing is solid because it's made of metal and it's just well-built. It's adjustable. So when you're right along, you have it engaged, you need to speed up, you don't have to turn it off, you don't have to turn the buttons off. You just simply twist your throttle and then it holds the new position. The website is atlasthrottlelock.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Atlasthrottlelock.com. See and be seen. That's the motto at Cyclops Adventure Sports. Cyclops makes all kinds of lighting products, especially designed for us riders. From auxiliary lighting to LED headlights to specialty things like their Evo safety turn signals. These I love. They replace your stock turn signals front and back. These become driving lights in the front. They're super bright white driving lights. In the back, they're red. In the front, they turn orange and become signals when you put your signal on. And in the back, they also signal and they come on with your brakes and they are stunningly bright. Like talk about seeing, being seen. These things punch holes through the darkness and they command attention in the daytime. So making drivers aware of you is obviously a huge part of road safety. The Evo Safety Turn Signal Inserts. I'm going to give you the website for it. While you're there at the website, have a look at the Cyclops Adventure Sports Aurora 2-inch Auxiliary Lights. These little things, these are small enough to fit just about anywhere on any bike, and they are powerhouses. Great for daytime awareness and stunning on a dark road. CyclopsAdventureSports.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. CyclopsAdventureSports.com. 
When it comes to being connected to your bike, your foot pegs are paramount. Obviously, how could you ride without foot pegs? So if they're so important, why do motorcycles come from the factory with such wimpy pegs? Well, it comes down to economics. And to be fair, the average motorcycle that's sold, very few are lucky enough to get a serious rider as its owner, but you are a serious rider and you need serious foot pegs. IMS Products makes a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs ranging from the extra wide and large ADV-1s and ADV-2s on down to the core Enduros. Now, these pegs are all made from cast certified 17-4 stainless steel. They're all built in the USA and they're all warrantied for life. And that warranty ought to give you a hint to the quality. They aren't just another foot peg. They're top of the line pegs, yet affordable for the average rider. The website is imsproducts.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. imsproducts.com. So, so just roughly, just describe where Indonesia is, is situated in the world for those who don't know. Uh, it, it, uh, it's, it's south of maybe a good uh, um, a good example. It's south of Singapore and north of Australia, mm-hmm. and but but the islands stretch. Uh, I think one of the pictures I sent you it was like fifteen thousand kilometers from the top island all the way to the top of Sumatra. So the top islands kind of um, around. Uh, um, well, the Philippines. And then if you ride through all Indonesia, it goes almost as high as Kuala Lumpur if you put a, a straight edge on it. So you're all the way to the other uh, side of Vietnam, to the other side of Malaysia, a- almost up towards Thailand. It, it kind of wraps around like a U. And, uh, it, uh, and I don't know how many islands it is, but um, if you did all the islands just going through like I did, it's at least 10 ferry crossings and one ferry crossing is three days. Well, well apparently it's 17, over 17,000, 17,500 islands. Oh, oh, yes, yes. In total. Yeah, but this is just uh, islands uh, you can easily get to. Uh, I, I on, on Java, for example, there's an island to the south that is just a, a people ferry that go over. Mm-hmm. So many people just leave their bikes and then take the ferry over for however many days and and uh, go visit that island. But um, r- really, I, I I I did it. I went to that island, but um, as beautiful as other places were, it, it it it's just so many islands you can't go to all of them. Right. And do they do they all have ferry service or most of the islands of these uh, 17,000 islands? Yeah, I imagine not all of them. Yeah, the, the big ones do. And, um, uh, yeah, and then the ferries. Uh, and some of them are nice, but then other ones, you walk down these stairways right on the edge of the ferry and there's no railing. So you better be careful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and now it's interesting you mentioned ferries because, of course, if you look at any of the official... Um, uh, recommendations for travel. That's one of the things that comes up is the ferries being unsafe. Oh, I mean, Oh yes. Yes. You know, oh, got- that's the other thing is, uh, um, so, so the three day ferry from Sulawesi, um, down to Dili, you can pay somebody to go on the ferry for you and then you fly. <laughs> 
So, like, think about what you're doing right there. You know, yes. I mean, that's obviously a safe thing for you, but boy, that person going on there obviously well, needs the well, money well, more than they're worried about the risk. Well, regardless of how safe it is, uh, three days on a hot ferry. <laughs> yeah, that's it, right. It, I, I've done that where you uh, um, pitch your tent on the deck, but it, it it's three grueling days. And, and, and that ferry, particular ferry I'm talking about from Makassar to Mamere, I believe, uh, it, it's it's only certain times of year because the oceans get really rough. Mm-hmm. So so really, that's the only one. But but I think most people, if they go to Indonesia, they're not going to be going up to Sulawesi anyways. So it um, so really from Bali, you you have islands that go to the east, so people will go there or go to the west, which is Java, where all those volcanoes are. Mm-hmm. Um, that I had mentioned where you can drive down into them. Um, the other islands like Sumatra, um, where the tigers, if you look up Sumatra online, tigers will come up. Sure. Um, and I've seen the, the orange tigers, the very stereotypical ones. Mm-hmm. Just here, here deer run across the road, but I saw a tiger run across the road there. And, and people didn't even seem phased by it. Uh, like, I guess tigers are... I, I had never seen a tiger like that. Even maybe Africa has them, but I'd never seen a tiger, the big orange ones yeah, in, in real life. Yeah. So, I've seen cougars, that, which, you know, yeah. very, very similar. Oh yes. Yeah. But I'm talking the orange ones with yeah, the white stripes you, and the black. And, yeah. That's spectacular. Yeah. I mean, it's, yes. yeah, it's, uh, you know, when we're talking about the, the, the fairies, I, I remember looking on the, the U S government, um, uh, site and, and they're, where they're talking about, you know, the travel warnings, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they're saying that in 2017, um, Oh yeah. I think one, uh, sunk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There, there was a, there was a couple of them. I think that sunk. But in 2017, the Indonesian Search and Rescue recorded, get this, 1,687 boat accidents. <laughs> yeah. So, so resulting resulting in many injuries and 680 deaths. Uh, wow. So yeah, um, yeah. You know, and I guess happens. that's another uh, another thing. At, uh, back to Africa, I just never knew. So, so it uh, back to Indonesia again. I never knew how dangerous the ferries were. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but other than that, than that three day one, there's another twelve hour ferry um, on the islands east of Bali. But all the other ferries are like one or two hours, so you're fairly close to the shore mm-hmm. um, at, with those. And, and yeah, other than that twelve hour one, um, but uh, so I guess that's the hiccup if people are scared of ferries because the twelve hour ferry east of Bali, it's just one little village to another little village, so you're not gonna be able to fly between uh, those two points mm-hmm. uh, or maybe if you, you rent a local plane to take you. Uh, um, but, but I think, uh, um, or maybe that's the fun of it. At, uh, um, in Thailand, you see those boats with the propellers hanging off the back and they're, Oh, they're this, this, the motor, there's the engine yes. there and the straight shaft goes to yes, the back yes. and the prop and is the sort diesel of diesel engine. Yes. But if you ever seen those boats up close and you see water coming in between the seams of the, of the hull of the boat and oh. how oily the engine is. And mm-hmm. it, it, you You'd know, start they look to really, question the, the safety uh, yes, aspect yes. of it. Right. <laughs> right. But yeah. Yeah. When, when you, they look cool, they look really interesting when you're out on the water, but when you're up close to them, they're very beat up. Yeah. So, well, the thing is with the ferry though, I mean, is you, you, you don't have much control there. That's a big no, craft. No. And I mean, if something goes wrong there, but it can't go wrong that often. Even when I read that, I thought, well, I mean, how could they afford to keep replacing ferries? They're not yes, going to do yes. it. Eventually they're going to cancel the ferry service. I think the, 
the one really bad one, it was going from Singapore over to another island. And I, I think that's where that one happened. And, and maybe it was just a, a people ferry. Uh, but um, but there's islands literally everywhere in Indonesia. It's, there's so many you can't uh, you can't go to all of them. I I spent uh, if you connect all my trips together from Sulawesi all the way up to Banda Aceh, it's like over five and a half months, and that's riding almost every day. Mm. I I think uh, yeah, a few places I stayed maybe two nights in a hotel. But really, rarely I would stay more than one, you know, more than two nights. And it's riding every day. It's it, people don't realize how big and spread out Indonesia is. Now, now when you go there, would you have to take a ferry? Uh, well, really, because Bali, um, I, I've ridden from Bali where you fly in at, at, at the airport mm-hmm. to like the opposite end of the, of the island. And that's maybe like four or five hours tops. So the island, or, or really even the island of Bali, there's like two or three volcanoes on it. So, so you can get a tour guide to take you to those places. So, so somebody could fly into Bali and just stay in Bali. It's not a, you don't have to take a ferry. Right. But if you and, want to do and, much exploring, you want to count on taking some ferries. Yes, yes. Right. And, and yeah, yeah. So, so if you go, so from Bali, if you go east, you're going to take a lot of ferries. If you go west... That's Java where Jakarta is, and that's just one ferry, and you can see Java, so it's not that far, um, and it's maybe an hour, and and not not any more complicated than taking a ferry here out of Seattle. Um, you just need to have the ownership documents, but they don't make sure that they're in your name. Uh, it uh, and, and or, or maybe even back to that, the rental places. Um, there's a few of them in Bali that allow you to take the bikes to other islands. But, but I, I found, uh, um, and I guess it's the same for South Africa. They don't want you riding their rental bikes through 10 countries. Um, same thing on Indonesia. They don't want you riding them to other islands. I, I don't know what particularly that reason is, but uh, most bikes, they'll say Bali only. Mm. But you'll see some companies that do longer adventure trips, they call them where they'll let you take them to other islands. And, um, I, I think, uh, the guy I rented from, uh, I think I ended up putting, oh, well, the 32,000 kilometers on his motorcycle. And I don't know if he made money on my rental. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, the thing is with renting it though, if you rent a motorcycle and you physically take it to another country, like a different yes. country, then you've just left with their motorcycle and you. So, I mean, I can understand their apprehension for that. And well, I think well, a lot of, Places like Vietnam, they you're still allowed to do Cambodia and Laos on a Vietnam bike. Mm. So anybody doing that trip, if you if you rent in Vietnam, you can still do the other two countries. But if you rent in Cambodia and Laos, then Vietnam's the problem. They won't let you in on a Cambodian or a Lao bike oh, into Vietnam. The, the first time you did in Indonesia, you were on the, your own Africa Twin. Yes. And what was that like? Uh, it, it, uh, not much has changed. It, it, uh, um, maybe, or maybe the most that has changed is Bali. Um, they, they, uh, it's just become so tourist, so many tourists go there now and the roads are just so narrow and small and you have these big tour buses and vans. Uh, so, so, so I guess even back to that, 
is you don't really experience Indonesia until you leave Bali. So the whole purpose of going is to leave. You don't want to you don't want to be in Bali, even though it's very beautiful, but there's other places that are even better on the other islands. Right. Unless that's you what you're a, after. I mean, if you're after the party and that's what you're going for, Bali's yes, your place. Yes. But I mean, yes. if you want a real experience, that's where you got to get as far away from that as, as possible. And it's the same yes. as everywhere, isn't it? And, and, and I think, and I, I'm sure a lot of bikers like me are, are like this, but they, they typically don't like places where a lot of tourists are. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the authentic, I think the authentic, or what am I saying? Yeah, the authenticity of it. Yes, exactly. That goes down when you're in places like Bali, uh, where people, yeah, want to just sell you something versus they're just interested in your license plate, like in other parts of Indonesia. So the Africa twin though, what, what was it like for riding the bike, that bike there and which Africa, Uh, Africa twin was it? So that was the oldest one. So in 1989, it, uh, um, even back to the license plate, it wasn't as popular as the license plate was on the rental bike. It, it, I think people liked that bike because it was so big. Um, I think the biggest bike most average person will have there is the XR650. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, any anything bigger you just don't see. So the the newer Africa Twin, uh, and and I think I think I think the the lure of that old Africa twin is when you're riding it in countries where it wasn't sold. It doesn't really look like an old bike. People think like, Oh, well, Honda made a new bike. Like, why isn't it here? So it, uh, it, it, I, I feel like it doesn't really look that dated. Mm-hmm. So it, uh, so the big bike and then a bike being that it was never sold there. So, so, uh, everywhere you stopped, of course, people come up to you. So, it, uh, I, I kind of, um, as in most places I'll ride, uh, you kind of learn to park in conspicuous places. And, and it's not that I don't like talking, but it, it, if you stop 20 times in a day and 20 people talk to you, um, it, 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 it really prolongs your day out. Mm-hmm. Great for the first few, but after yes. that, it gets a little old, especially when you get the oh, same yes. questions over and yes, over yes. again. What, what about the physical size of the bike compared to the fact that most of the bikes there are very small? Uh, is you just can't get through the traffic. So, so I, I think, uh, if you just compare a standard Indonesian back road, you, you kind of want to stay off. So, so you, you, if you look at the map, you'll see a main route that goes through Java and Sumatra. It's on the North side that that road's just clogged up with buses and trucks mm-hmm. and dusty. So you're going to eat dust and it, and they're going fast. And so, so I stick to the mountain roads and, and a typical mountain road. Um, I think a standard truck will be over the line. So they're always on your side. And then when you go into cities, those trucks have to swerve out of in front of each other to get around and then stop traffic. And you just can't get through the the cars are so close together. The bike won't fit through. And the smaller bike will. The smaller bike will. Oh, I see. Or like up against the gutter or riding on the sidewalk. You just can't get through with a big bike, especially if you have a big wide set of panniers on it. Mm-hmm. Um, you just can't get through the traffic. It is one of those places that makes the Africa Twin feel like a bit of a pig yes. <laughs> compared to a tiny little motorcycle that you're zipping it around with. Yeah. So like even a, so my most, the, the most recent trip when I rented the bike, it was only a CRF 150 with the, it was air-cooled with the air-cooled head on it. Mm-hmm. And really, I don't 
even recall ever topping that bike out. Like there's really no opportunity to, um, maybe on the Southern part of Sumatra, there's a road that goes up the coast. It's like maybe 20 hours it takes you to get up it. And there's actually like one town with hotels. So you're camping on that route. There, there's really nothing. Uh, it goes from the, the southeastern part of Sumatra all the way up to, uh, what is it, a, a, a city that starts with a P. And uh, there's one town with hotels. So it's either you're going to make the 10 hours in a day and get a hotel or camp. And what's the camping like? Is this beach camping? Uh, well, it's not like here where there's campgrounds. You kind of just camp anywhere. It's not a... And people will be interested and come and see you. But uh, I just strung up my hammock on the beach and camped there. Mm. And and most of the beaches you can just go down and ride on. Uh, um, if you zoom in on Google Maps, if anybody goes there, there's a few beaches that are like 40 or 50 kilometers long. And they parallel the road. So you can just take the beach. Can you ride of, on that beach? Oh, yeah. yeah. It's not a, it's not illegal. Huh. And I don't think anybody would be there to stop you if it was, but it, it, uh, um, but locals ride on it. So, um, I don't see why we can't. Now, when you, when you take your bike in, maybe you didn't do this with your Africa twin, but when you do take your bike in, what does it take to get your bike into the country as far as a tip goes, temporary import permit, et cetera? Uh, it's a, a carnate country. And, uh, so it, it's, uh, it's very similar to the, um, what is it? The stall rat in, uh, Panama down mm-hmm. to Colombia. You, you have to find a, um, a fishing boat operator that allows you to put the bike on. And it's kind of a, a very unofficial way. I, I, I talked to um, another biker in Malaysia, and I guess he just went to the port in Madan. It's a big city in the north of, uh, of Sumatra and just port and found a broker to do it. And I guess that's the only way I keep hearing the Dumai onion boat mm. is not a possible route anymore. And that's what I took. So, so the only way is going to be to ship it in a container. Ship you know. it in a container and then fly. So I think that's a really big uh, discussion right now is how to get in and out of Indonesia um, for people riding through Australia and then up into Asia. Um, that, that portion from Sumatra over to Malaysia is, yeah, there's, it's very hard to do now. But, but you and, recommend, and what you would recommend right now, though, is that somebody rent a bike. Uh, yeah, that's really the easiest. And it, it, uh, but again, if you want to go to the far reaches of Sumatra, just realize how far it is. And, uh, the particular guy I rented from, he would ship a bike so you can go one way. So I think that's, if somebody has limited time and wants to go see Sumatra, that's the way to do it. But, but don't you only have 30 days and maybe you can get as much as 60 days or something? Uh, or, or you mean with a visa? Yeah. Oh, uh, so, so the visa with, uh, or I guess Canadians and U.S., uh, don't quote me on other places, is everybody gets a 30-day tourist visa. But when you go in, pay for the, pay for the, um, the physical visa, and they allow you to extend it. So you can extend it, I think, another month. So, so a lot of my trip, actually, um, I kind of, you go into a big city and park at the airport and fly out and then fly back in again. Oh, you, so you don't have to take your bike with you or if you, uh, or this is when rent, renting. Oh, so I that's see. the problem. That's the problem when you 
bring a bike in. Yeah, because you've got a car in it. You're going to have to take the bike yes. out. Yes, you can't fly out. And then you have the visa situation to contend with. And I and I think I was able to get a three-month visa. Um, if anybody traveling like me, you, you kind of figure out which cities are good for embassies. So like Bangkok's really good. So you can get an Indonesian visa within 24 hours in Bangkok. And I believe that's a three-month one for Canadians. Um but then the carne issue, you can't stay um, beyond what they give you when you come in. So then, and then you also can't leave. So, so that's why I say Indonesia is really the best place to just rent. Mm-hmm. And, and considering, because a lot of other carne countries, you could just leave and go to another country that's not carne, possibly like in Africa. But Indonesia, it's an island. So, so just getting the bike there and, uh, and off the island is really difficult. It's expensive. I mean, yes. you, you don't want to incur all that expense just to come back again. So yes, yes. Whatever you're going to do, you want to work it into that time for the visa, the 60 or, or, or possibly the 90 days. Yes. And any bikers I met on previous trips on the Africa twin, um, they were just rushing through Java and Sumatra on that main road that was so bad. And they would just took that the whole road all the way to Bali and then out east of Bali through all the other islands. And uh, there's a country called uh, uh, Timor Leste, and and uh, then you from there you can get a cargo ship to Australia, mm. and uh, yeah, and I, I guess Timor um, they're a little bit more relaxed to where you can leave the bike. I've heard I've never left one there, but uh, Indonesia, it yeah, it's just one of those very uh, unique places that you have limited time, and it's an island, so people just rush through. And don't really see the country. When's the best time to go to Indonesia if somebody was thinking of doing it? Uh, uh, so uh, not in the rainy season, but but being so close to the equator, as long as you stay out of the rainy season, um, you're really good. Uh, the, the rainy season being what, like um, mid October or something, November to March, rather. Let me check this. Okay. <laughs> I've always been. I so I've always on all my trips. I was always there in spring and summer. Um, uh, rain, rainy season. But, but from what I understand, it depends on where you are too. Like it's not, um, like, don't they have a, doesn't it vary for them? What is uh, the, the wet season? It, so, so like in Sumatra on my most recent trip, you would get, um, downpours. So, but these are downpours where you're wet in 10 seconds. Uh, but, but then the sun comes back out again. So it's not a, um, there's no it's big deal. not, yeah, it, uh, so, so here it's saying November to March is the rainy season, uh, including Java and Bali. Yeah, it, it uh, but the, yeah, the, so the most recent trip, I was there from November to, uh, March and I, I very rarely had a rainy day. It would always be just a quick downpour and, and you have all these, uh, little roadside shacks with, uh, that with covers on the side of the road. So if it starts pouring, you just go in under under this cover, and uh, typically you won't get too wet. Mm-hmm. And then, but but it's it's uh, um, <clears throat> you're talking thirty five degrees C, so you're not going to get cold. Yeah. Um, other uh, a few places that went up on the volcanoes, um, you did get cold. So definitely bring like a light jacket and pants. Uh, but other than that, you really don't get that cold in Indonesia. It's not a very cold country. It says November to March, but I was there during that time. And uh, it, 
had rain, but nothing, anything more, not anything more than any other um, country that's close to the equator. And as as far as um, gear to wear, obviously you're going to take your helmet and your whatever gear you want for your abrasion and crash resistance. Um, But um, I guess rain gear, really, really, that's it. Is there, is there anything Uh, in particular you think people should take? You know, know, it's funny is I've never owned any rain gear. Uh, You you know, you can use trash bags. You can use uh, people sell these ponchos on the side of the road, but, but um, being that it's so hot and, and, uh, and, and on all my trips, you, you just get, you know, one downpour really quickly and then the sun comes back out again. So you really don't need rain gear and, and big, uh, like this jacket that I have now, it doesn't breathe very well, like a big ADV jacket type jacket. It's going to be so hot. You won't get any airflow through it. And, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's too hot to have a typical jacket from any Western country to take there. Um, I, I would say, um, so, so, or, or maybe to go back to just Asian countries in general, there, there's two or three countries that's really good with gear. I'd say Japan, Taiwan, and Vietnam. They have all these bike shops or really cool motorcycle gear that, that's very useful for the country. But Indonesia, for whatever reason, the gear is really lacking. So, so just like the modular helmets that flip up, those are unheard of there so like you'll have people just trying to pay you for your modular helmet because it's <laughs> not available in indonesia oh, really? so 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 definitely bring your own versus um i and 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 i think a lot of the helmets they say dot or whatever the three acronyms are i think it's more that they just put that there versus actually being mm-hmm. um so so definitely bring your own helmet from your own country versus buying there um, and then, uh, for gear, uh, um, I, I had these little low cutoff boots, but a lot of times I just put them on the back of the bike and wear tennis shoes. I know, I know it's bad, but, uh, you know, the fastest you go is 50, 60 kilometers an hour. Anyways, it's not too fast. It, uh, so it's not like the speeds that you're talking about here. Um, so, so yeah, it, it uh, um, I had a mesh jacket that allows the wind to go through. Um, and I think that was from Vietnam. And then, uh, I just wore regular pants. I didn't, uh, I, I, I don't wear, a, uh, like the climb gear. I, I, I do here, but when you're in a place like that, it's just so hot. Um, I haven't found pants that breathe well, even the jacket, it still doesn't breathe well at 35, 40 degrees C mm. and, and being so humid. And then it gets to the point where, you, you know, you're going to pass out from the heat. Yes. And that's, yes. that's not protection. Yes. Well, I've heard they just wear regular clothes, uh, you know, however good or bad that is. It, it's just really hot. And unless you've ridden in a very tropical country like that, um, yeah, you just have no idea how hot it is uh, um, compared to the weather here in the U.S. or Canada. Mm-hmm. You mentioned about the, the people being very friendly. Oh yes. What, 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 talk about that. Uh, it, it, uh, yeah, it, it with, with the trips I've done, you kind of get a, a feel for how people are everywhere. And in Indonesia, I'd probably say is in the top five of nicest countries I've been in. And, uh, just, and, and really, uh, for people that don't like, uh, um, staying in hotels, uh, people will let you camp in their yards and, 
and invite you. Like daily, I get invited to lunch and dinner. It, it, uh, um, what do you mean? You're just on just the not, street and you bump into yeah, somebody? Oh yeah, because yeah, uh, the plate attracts people or the Africa twin. So, uh, um, so people will come up to you constantly and offer to take you places or, or even say like, Oh, this, you know, take this road versus this one. It's much more beautiful. Um, but it, it uh, really for Indonesia, I wouldn't have had to stay in a hotel one night there because people offer their homes to you every day. That's it, it, uh, yeah. There's only a few places in the world that, uh, I've experienced that. And, uh, and probably for Asian country or, or Southeast Asia, uh, Myanmar and, and Indonesia, that happens in quite often. And they're just not in both of those countries. They're just not used to foreigners on places like Sumatra and, uh, Sulawesi, uh, Java a little bit more, but, uh, but, um, really once you leave Bali and the islands surround the smaller surrounding islands of Bali, there's no tourist. It, it, uh, um, I, so the most recent trip, I saw one tourist on a rental bike, uh, maybe a hundred kilometers into Java. And then I saw one other tourist walking, uh, on an, uh, in a, city in the north Sumatra or actually Padang, Padang, Padang. Um, it's quite a very remote city on the coast of Sumatra. And, uh, so really I saw two tourists in five months. That's incredible that it sticks yeah. out in your mind that much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I'm sure there's others. Cause like for me, uh, when I ride the motorcycle, I cover everything, cover your face. And, um, like a lot of the police checkpoints, they just let you through cause they're, they think you're, you know, a local. Um, oh. so I, I kind of do that everywhere, even, even, uh, yeah. So just cover your face and you kind of just look like a local. So, so unless others were doing that, you know, I didn't see them, but, but I think most tourists, when they rent a motorcycle, they kind of, you know, wear cut off sleeves and shorts and, you know, they stick out. Just scream tourist. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, so like kind of the stereotypical tourists that you see riding the Ho Chi Minh trail, mm -hmm. um, somebody that's never maybe ridden a bike and actually if anybody rides in Asia and they see a person like that, you don't want to ride around them because those are the most dangerous riders. The foreigners. The foreigners are. <laughs> so, but in Indonesia, at least you never see them outside Bali. Right. Their, their drug laws are, are pretty strict, aren't they? Oh yes. Actually, I, I was going to bring it up. Uh, there's a, uh, uh, there's an island off Java and uh, it's the execution island. So a lot of the people that have smuggled drugs into Bali have gone to that island and were executed. Because, but, but I think it, it's more um, of to be a mated or they, they want to make an example out of people. So, I, so the, I, I think there was one really famous one about Australians. I think it was like the Bali Five or uh, so like the the main person that like orchestrated all of it, they executed him, but the other people got life in prison. Wow. Uh, but, but, but yeah, yeah, that's, I'm actually glad you brought that up. I um, don't definitely don't have uh, um, any um, illegal medication or drugs going into the Indonesia. It's not a, 
good thing. So you'd want to be really careful with your prescription drugs if you're carrying some, make sure that things are labeled. and Yes, or even th- there was this prescription drug I used to take, and I guess it's highly illegal in Thailand. And I never knew that. And I took it in Thailand 10, 20 times and never knew that it was illegal. But I guess it's a very big no-no to take them in. To, you didn't get caught. No, no. When you go into a country now, do you do that research now? Is that sort of a standard thing for you to do? Uh, Just check and see what's legal and what's not? Or do, you, or do you more look in your bag and say, I'm bringing this in. I'm going to check on that. Yeah. Uh, other than that medication, there's really nothing uh, I've ever had to take in anywhere. I don't do any drugs, so you don't need to. Um, yeah. So I don't check, but really uh, some countries have very weird rules and, and then some are selectively enforced and then others are not. So it's definitely worth checking. And I think you mentioned as well that English is, is pretty ubiquitous. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it uh, well, everybody that's traveled here kind of knows, say in Central America, you go into a restaurant and they'll say like, oh, my daughter speaks English. I'll go get her. Uh, but in Indonesia, it's like probably 80% of the people will have a decent grasp of English, mm-hmm. even in small little villages in Sumatra. So um, so going back to the easy countries to travel in, it's, it's easy because it's people speak English there. It's not a... Um, it's not a difficult country where pumping gas is, you know, an issue. Hmm. Um, oh, I, um, actually, I, I always tell people about this. So the Bali airport, the taxi mafia has enclosed it to where you can't, uh, you can't leave the airport without uh, taking a taxi. And I've, I've asked t- taxi drivers to go to a hotel you can see from the airport and they want like, hundred dollars and you can talk them down. But what you do is, is when you come out of the terminal, walk straight through the parking garage and then walk down the entrance road and you can get out of the airport and then you can order a taxi and then it's no more price. Oh, so they've got so, it set up so that you're forced otherwise you're forced to get a taxi or use like a hotel shuttle. Uh-huh. But like somebody like me, we're not going to be staying in a really expensive hotel. So they're not going to have a hotel shuttle. So you need to get away from the airport. And, uh, uh, but the Bali airport, they have it enclosed to where you can't walk out of it easily, mm-hmm. but you have to know where to go. And you actually have to walk on the road to get out and you walk through the toll booth and then you can get out away from the airport and then order a taxi. Um, right. yeah. And then there's a bunch of hotels there. So you can just go in the lobby and order one. It, uh, and then it's easy, but, uh, I think uh, people, or, or like Phuket in Thailand, they pass the laws to where there's a minimum fee. But the thing is, is in Bali, the airport's in the city. So they just enclose the airport so most foreigners don't leave. And then they have to pay a taxi. But in Phuket, the airport's like 50 kilometers away. So even if you left, there's nowhere to go. So, you're, you know, the people are pretty captive there. Uh, right. But in Bali... Um, they fenced it in to where you can't get out easily. Mm. So it, the, uh, yeah. the, US, the U S government says credit card fraud is a problem. It says, don't lose, don't lose track of your, uh, your card when you're using it and, yeah. and you know, yeah, fake that, ATMs um, and things like that. And the lonely planet says they, they say there's a small risk of pickpocketing. Yeah. And that's probably mostly in Bali. Uh, and, and how you mentioned ATMs is that ATMs don't charge fees. 
in in Indonesia, so it's free to get cash. So if you get $100 US, if you just put it in on the Google um, exchange rate calculator, that's what the ATM will give you. So it's, it's really easy to get cash. So and, and really the whole country, my visa card from the US and Canada work everywhere. So it's not a, um, some countries, if you go to little towns, the banks won't support international cards. But for whatever reason, it works everywhere. So you don't need to get $1,000 of cash. You can just kind of go, you know, get enough cash for a week. So if you're ripped off, you don't lose everything. Um, it, it's, uh, um, and it's really not even a, a country you need to bring other currency in. So, so like Vietnam, for example, the ATM fees are horrendous. So what people do is they bring in euros and then exchange it at gold shops to get dong. And that's the cheapest way to do it. Mm-hmm. But in Indonesia, the ATMs, they're all free for fees. So it's very easy to just go day by day and, uh, use very little cash versus having a bunch of cash on you and exchanging it or getting a bunch of cash out of the ATM all at one time. Mm, you're less vulnerable. So you, yes. So you don't really need to, um, yeah. And, and, uh, other than, um, uh, who, where would you use a credit card? Um, Indonesia has these, so I'm a big coffee shop person. So I go to coffee shops. So bigger cities have these really, really fancy coffee shops. So like places like that, you can use a credit card. Um, you're definitely not going to use it for gas. So, so really the only place you'd use a credit card is at a fancier restaurant. But other than that, it's all cash only, uh, even hotels, unless it's a fancy hotel, you're not going to use a credit card. So, so really the, it's just fancy food and ATMs is the only place you'd use a card. But the ATMs are, are plentiful and easy to get to. Plentiful and everywhere. And, and, and they don't decline your card for being international. So mm-hmm. um, not like Vietnam, well, back to Vietnam, you go to a small village. Many times the card won't work in the ATMs. But uh, everywhere in Indonesia I ever used mine, it worked fine, um, which is not the case for everywhere else. And it, it uh, um yeah, so it's definitely uh, you're going to use more cash, and 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 many hotels even. Um, there's a few places in Sulawesi that hotels don't show up on Google, so you kind of have to do it the old-fashioned way where you find one, and you kind of have to know what to look for. And, and and some city, some little towns just don't have them. And that that one section that's 20 hours on the coast, there's one town with hotels, and that's. You know, you either stay there or you, or you find a local to stay with or camp. But, but a lot of the hotels, they, they, it's much cheaper if you pay uh, in person. So compared to, because, well, the medium to big cities, you can book hotels just online. And there's still 10 or 15, but, but um, that's 10 or 15 with a credit card online. You, you can get lower, like maybe 8 to 12 if you pay cash. So it's always cheaper to pay cash than uh, mm. booking online, uh, but but it uh, but typically maybe ninety percent of the country, if somebody just wants to use their card or they're more comfortable versus uh, bargaining the price, it's better to just book online and and it's still so cheap. It's definitely under twenty dollars a night, um, you know, with a wide range in a big city versus a small village. It's going to be cheaper. Even small villages, you can still book 
uh, on a online versus going in with the exception of a few places. So to, um, to wrap it up, what would you end this with, with telling people why you think they should go and explore Indonesia? Uh, in- Indonesia, it, it, um, I think it's a good starter country. That's, uh, easy for somebody that's never done the fly and ride. Um, and there's a few in Asia that are easy, but I think, uh, Indonesia is probably definitely the cheapest. Um, I, I, I think the only issue you're going to run into is finding a motorcycle rental company. There's a few in Bali. If you look it up, like the first three are really good, um, that allow you to take the bikes to other islands and, and people speak English. So it's not a, it's not a difficult place to go and ride and test your riding skill. It's not a, um, even the drivers, uh, after you ride in Asia for a while, you, you kind of under, you kind of understand countries driving habits and Indonesia is not anywhere near the, the worst. People don't really drive extremely fast. Like other places, uh, they generally respect motorcycles and, uh, it, it, uh, and the traffic's not as long as or, or people that uh, if they see places like Vietnam and you see the bikes just all riding at each other and everybody kind of avoids you. If you understand that concept at all, you'll be able to ride in Indonesia. No problem. It, it, uh, and it's just a great place to explore and people won't expect you when you arrive uh, when you arrive in their town. And, and uh, it's really a. Um, breath of fresh air versus riding in Vietnam and people see tourists everywhere. So it, you won't be expected everywhere that you go in Indonesia. And, it, uh, and there's places that are quite beautiful along the way, beaches and even volcanoes that you can camp in the, in the caldera, uh, in the sand. And uh, I think if anybody's looking for a fly and ride type of trip, definitely look at Indonesia and, and uh, I think you wouldn't be disappointed. Well, Dustin, thank you very much. That was very interesting. I, re- I really appreciate your time. Oh, good. I'm, I'm glad I, I was able to come on and share Indonesia with other people. was Dustin Evans from his home in Seattle, Washington. We've got some photos of Dustin and his adventures in the show notes for this episode at our website, adventureriderradio.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps. 
wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course to you, the listener. Thank you very much for listening. If you haven't done it already, we would love to get a five-star review from from you. Uh, Go anywhere where you find podcasts, particularly the place that you find them. iTunes would be great. And uh, give us a five-star review. Uh, That helps other people find the show. We greatly appreciate that. The other thing is, is the show is built on on a model of advertising and listener support we need you to step up and, and check out our, our support options. Anything $10 or more gets you a sticker, an Adventure Rider radio sticker. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on our Raw show. And we would love to have you consider becoming one of our patron supporters. All available on the website, adventureriderradio.com and click on support. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening and I will talk to you next week. Well, I'm Ted Simon, and here I am on Adventure Rider Radio again, uh, and extremely happy to be here with Jim Martin. (laughs) 